Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So Elaine, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, into a tight-knit uh, Mennonite community. And one of the important pieces of that community is that all four of my grandparents, along with some 20,000 other Mennonites, came from Ukraine and Russia after the Russian Civil War. And during the war is when this community experienced um, severe violence. And so why it is important for obviously our topic today as we talk about intergenerational trauma. I grew up in a community that was deeply impacted by that and we're still wrestling with it. And on the other on the other side of that, one of the one of the gifts that I grew up with of my childhood that continued actually until my parents passed away was their work with refugees. One of my first memories of when I was a little girl was having two young men as cello and a bevy from Ethiopia around our table and they were so kind and played with me and and those are my childhood memories people from all over the world at our table um, indulging me as a little girl but also having a sense that my mom and dad were doing this work because that's what we are called to do and that these people were coming from a place of violence or they needed to leave their country and they were now living in a very strange place and my parents were trying to help them along with the church to get settled and feeling comfortable in this new place. And so I, I had wonderful demonstrations of the work of justice that was a part of our discipleship and who God had called us to be as a, a reflection of our Mennonite faith. And then there was a underlying current of I didn't know it then, but unresolved or untransacted trauma that also heavily impacted our community. So I think both of those experiences encouraged me to go on my own journey. And exactly 30 years ago, this August, I was just barely 22 years old, and I came to Fresno, California, on a Mennonite voluntary service assignment to work with the Victim Offender Reconciliation Program. And that was an incredibly impactful experience, and that called me on to this restorative justice journey that I've been on ever since. Elaine, I can see where this intersection of restorative justice and intergenerational trauma meet. You having grown up watching your parents do works of justice um, for communities that were likely facing intergenerational trauma, but then you yourself growing up in a community that was facing intergenerational trauma. And I know a lot of your work and research currently uh, centers around that topic, and I will include some links to your writing. But for those of us who may not be aware of what intergenerational trauma is, could you briefly describe what is intergenerational trauma? 
if you are listening to this, you're probably aware that trauma studies has just exploded in the last 10, 15 years. An interesting thing that I learned is that post-traumatic stress disorder was not even recognized. There was no understanding of it until the late 80s or early 1990s. And people just assumed that people that were victims of horrible violence, as soon as they got out of that violence, they would just kind of get over it. But that clearly wasn't happening. And so this understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder also helps us understand uh, how intergenerational trauma can be passed down. And so the intergenerational trauma can be transmitted both through nature and through nurture. And research is being done across all sorts of communities that experience severe Uh, violence, war, slavery, genocide, all those horrific communal experiences. And so there's a lot uh, that a lot of researchers coming out of the Jewish community, and some are finding that offspring of Holocaust survivors were more vulnerable to developing PTSD just by witnessing their parents' chronic PTSD. So just by seeing their parents go through it. And then some descendants experience PTSD symptoms simply by hearing about Holocaust-related events. So in those two ways, PTSD or intergenerational trauma can be passed down. And then researchers are also seeing how PTSD impacts parenting styles. So survivors of the Khmer Rouge killing fields, um, some were exhibiting role reversal parenting in which a parent looks to a child to meet their needs of intimacy or comfort and then the child attempts to meet those needs and that led to anxiety in the next generation. And you know, Mennonite researchers talked about how Mennonite women who were fleeing stall Russia, they would withhold intimacy from their children because they were uncertain that their children would survive because so many children were dying because of starvation and different conditions. Well, now it's widely recognized that this lack of parental attachment leads to development trauma disorder in children. And, And then it goes on, like there's so many more other ways like epigenetics. Um, And that's a new field of study, but it's looking at inherited alterations in gene functions. So survivors that face life-threatening experiences, and again, it's like war, torture, slavery, famine, they develop changes to the chemical coatings of their chromosomes. And so then this coating becomes a sort of cell memory or a physiological footprint of trauma that is passed down just like other genetic characteristics. And then we can pass down intergenerational trauma in utero. There was a study done of expectant mothers who witnessed the collapse of the World Trade Towers, Mm. and they developed PTSD. And then studies showed that in the first year of life, their babies, so the women, the mothers were pregnant when they saw the, or experienced, witnessed the collapse of the World Trade Towers. And then when their babies were born, the babies also exhibited lower cortisol levels. And this, in some studies, is related to an increased risk of the babies developing PTSD as young adults when they experience their own trauma. So there's lots of ways that intergenerational trauma is passed down. And then a piece that I looked at 
was how the Mennonite community tells our stories of survival, communal narratives, how those stories are shaped, what is told and what is not told is also a way that trauma is passed down. So in the things that are told and in the things that are omitted. So the different silences that are not told are as important as the stories that are told. And one researcher talks about, a researcher of intergenerational trauma, talks about whether the trauma is talked about or not, it will be passed down. Mm. And then I always want to correct after that whole litany, I want to say, you know, the good news is a lot of people don't develop post-traumatic stress Mm. disorder. And there's lots of reasons researchers are looking at that too. And interestingly, of course, researchers are coming up with different stuff, but it really stuck with me that whether we talk about it or not, our wounds, our victimization, it is getting passed down. There are many ways to heal about it, but I know that silence is not one of those. That goes exactly against the grain of trying to heal. So I know in part two of this interview, we're going to get to your advice for clergy and church leadership and others surrounding how they can help create a safe space for people who have or are experiencing intergenerational trauma. Um, But before we get to that, I was wondering if you could speak more specifically about narratives, trauma narratives that you have discovered in the Mennonite tradition and about how those narratives have affected the community and maybe even where were some of the silences in that community and how have those silences affected the community as well? Yeah. Well, I, I looked at two silences and wove them together. And one was the silences about experience of violence for women. And this happened in two, two different recent eras. One was during the Russian Civil War. Uh, so the 19 in the 19 you know 17 to 1921 um, there was the sexual assault and rape of many I think many many people that were targeted um, and of course I I'm most familiar with Mennonite women in Ukraine Russia and then also during World War II in Stalinist Russia when Mennonite women were trying to flee Russia and being overtaken by the German army and then the the rape and sexual assault of Stalinist uh, Russian Mennonite women. And I do want to say Marlene Epp did all this research. It's a wonderful uh, resource if you're interested in looking at Marlene Epp's Um, work, Women Without Men. She did all the primary research that I know of, um, of those Stalinist uh, Russian Mennonite women. In the research that I did, and I focused on Ruslander women, and those are the women that came uh, during the 1920s from Russia, Ukraine. And so I was mostly interviewing their children or their grandchildren, and then reading accounts that people had written about that time. People would make references and say something like, oh yeah, all the girls 
and women over the age of 12 were raped or molested. Rape was ubiquitous, but it didn't happen to us. It didn't happen to your aunties. It didn't happen to your grandmothers or your mothers. And so there was, people would go into great detail about uh, murder or dismemberment or, you know, the burning of homes and livestock and the stealing of food and and all, all of these different violences. There were lots of memoirs that would detail this, but then there would be just one sentence that would just say, and all the women were molested. And, you know, there's many reasons, of course, why we don't talk about that violence, that horrible, horrible violence, why women don't want to talk about it. The demasculation of the men who either were held to watch or fled to the forest so they wouldn't be shot, and the women were left to face the soldiers. There's lots of reasons why we don't tell those stories. But in the silencing of those women's stories, we have lost women's perspective of what they encountered and how they survived and have lost the story about one one of the interviewees talked about knowing that at least two or three of their family members were children of rape, but that was never talked about. I think we are still trying to heal from the silences around those particular stories. And then and then the other silence, equally damaging and consequential, is about flooding into the Canadian prairies in the 1920s altering the landscape and the population of, in particular, Saskatchewan, and not ever telling as a part of our story the dispossession of Indigenous peoples and communities and the horrors of uh, colonization that had already been severely impacting the prairie's policies of of starvation and spreading of diseases and the horrific measures that were taken towards the indigenous peoples of the prairies. In our narratives, typically, and, and I talk about these in terms of the myths of our communal narratives, we came to this land so grateful for being able to come to Canada, escaping the violence of Russia, there was no one on the land. We were given beautiful land and we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps because of our hard work and faithfulness. We've become um, successful farmers and all the layers of untruths and silences there, not naming the privileges and benefits and not naming our complicity in colonization. And I do always want to say, like, I, I'm so grateful for the women that spoke with me in my research, and I have deep respect and love for them and for our ancestors. And then we have to complexify our history, uh, talk about the uncomfortable bits in our story if we want to work at healing and that I strongly believe that our healing and our loss is and how we find our way to healing is wrapped up very much the stories of Indigenous people in the Canadian prairies and one of the elders that was a part of my research, uh, a Cree elder, Harry Lafon, talked about 
you know, my loss, speaking for himself, my loss is your loss. And, and a way that we can heal is if we are able to figure out how to tell our stories and histories so that they are intertwined and can't be pulled apart. That's right. The two uh, silences that you were just addressing seem like they have two sides of healing uh, addressed to them. Mm-hmm. One side is acknowledging what has happened to us and um, what that means now and how that has affected the family system, so to speak, of the Mennonite church. And then what have we been complicit in and yeah. how does that manifest itself in how we become reconciled? Um, mm-hmm. how we are reconciled with indigenous people. I know that you're doing work. I attended recently a conference, mm-hmm. the Bartimaeus uh, Kinsler Institute, and there's this amazing work happening that you and your partner, Ched, are doing to talk about reconciliation and to have settlers, as that would be us, uh, <laughs> listen to the voices of indigenous people and to learn from and to better understand what our work should be. Putting that aside, because I recognize you guys are doing a, a ton of work and in inviting people into that, and I'm going to include a link. How do you see on a broad scale these two unresolved needed healings? How do you see those playing out? The one side where there hasn't been an acknowledgement and a naming of the trauma that has happened to us, and then the other side of there hasn't been an acknowledgement of what we have done. Like, how do you see that right now? Like, what are some concrete examples you can give how that's manifesting in the church? One of the big blind spots, I think, in the church or in European settler descendants, right? That those of us that are descendants of settlers that came from Europe, you know, and, and especially those of us, and again, Mennonites, that have a understanding of discipleship that is about peace and justice, there is a blind spot or an unwillingness to look at our complicity in the project of colonization. We're not willing to acknowledge the many privileges that our people got, both in Russia and Ukraine, when we made our journey there in the 1780s, and then again, um, when we came to the Canadian prairies. There are similar stories for U.S. uh, Mennonites. But what I'm seeing now is, you know, we have been living on Treaty 6 land for a hundred years, and our leaders were a astute at negotiating. They even called them privilegiums. They were privileges uh, in terms of, you know, not having to serve in the military. And we negotiated a help in travel costs for coming over. And of course, we, we paid that back. But we, you know, we got choice pieces of land and at low prices and these different um, privileges that we negotiated. And, and that is one set of it other piece is, I think we do acknowledge those sometimes, but we don't acknowledge them to the extent that we participated in this project of colonization and in participating in the ways we did with negotiating these privileges, how much that contributed to the dispossession of indigenous folks. People will say, we've been on this land, you know, for a hundred years, this is our land, we love this land, we take care of this land. And those stories 
are true. They've been on that land. But there, there isn't a recognition of the much longer history of what was happening on this land for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before our people got there. And really, our, our story starts when our ancestors came to Saskatchewan rather than a much longer history of what had been happening on the prairies uh, before that. Are there false narratives that are generated by the church as a result of the unprocessed and unacknowledged trauma that has been inflicted and that has been suffered? And what is the effect upon the church? For example, in the United States, we have many false narratives about indigenous people, including Um, laziness or just addicted or we take such good care of indigenous people because we give them reservations. What are, if any, those false narratives and how are they affecting how the church responds to the call to be reconciled to indigenous people? Because what I have experienced is this, at least in popular culture, understanding of indigenous people's situation as a product of their own culpability as opposed to them being the victims of intergenerational trauma which we have in large part been a part of we call it anything but trauma and so i'm wondering if that's the same uh, in your experience Yes. yes, there are those horrible lies uh, that that cover kind of North America, particular to Mennonite narratives. There's one that really hit me that uh, a person talked about how comparing Mennonites to indigenous people in Saskatchewan, saying, look, we went through horrible violence and, and look at what we've done. You know, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We we have our own schools. We have, you know, our own businesses and organizations. We do peace and justice work all over. You know, I, I just don't understand, like, why, what is wrong with those indigenous people? Why can't they do the same thing? And, you know, I actually think that is a pretty prevalent attitude or narrative that, again, completely disregards the incredible disparity in terms of all the privileges we are given based on white skin privilege and the horrific racism and colonization policies directed towards indigenous people. And so to try and compare, and that's a dangerous part of my thesis, too, because I am never never saying let's talk about the suffering of Mennonites just for the sake of building up how we have suffered. Our suffering was real and relatively brief compared to the 500 plus years of the programmed discrimination and destruction of indigenous cultures here. But can it help us build some empathy? But let us never compare or or make those statements. But that is one of the narratives that is there. But there's also just a lot of silence, Sherry. There are people, you know, our farms are right next to First Nations reservations. And there 
is no mention of indigenous peoples in our the telling of our stories or of our histories. And of course, there are beautiful exceptions to that. And I do believe that is changing. But the majority of our narratives would just be complete silence about the indigenous reality, history, how we got our land, uh, where we settled, yeah. who tribes were we're here. Where are they now? Are they still present? All of that. Well, and I wonder, I think it's brilliant that you connected the two because I wonder if the unresolved trauma and the silence of the Mennonite suffering that you've, you've talked about and, and the unwillingness to address that is it, it, that would probably breed a lack of empathy, right? That's a, there's a hardness there. We pulled ourselves up by the bootstrap. You know, that's not right. something that, that someone who really um, is identifying with their own need and vulnerability. Right. And it's so interesting. Go ahead, yeah. Well, you know what? I just wanted to say one more thing because I think, I think in our denial of the, the shameful violence yeah. that happened to our community, which is, you know, the the rape and sexual assault of women, in denying that we were damaged or that we have any of this intergenerational trauma, that uh, puts us on a road of superiority and even on a road of perfectionism. And I know that perfectionism, superiority, that is a part of the white supremacist lens or purview how we work in the world and I think Mennonites have a have a special have a special piece of that there is a level of yeah denying denying that we were hurt and harmed Mm -hmm. does exactly what you said cuts our ability to be able to really relate to others that are going through uh violence and and uh you know the horrors of colonization racism now it and and we can disparage towards them because they haven't been able to rise above but we are our lens is unable to see that it is ongoing and continuing mm-hmm. well and i want to just tell people because they couldn't see you when you said the shameful violence you did air quotes because yeah i think you. that that is i think that's really important to talk about because what are the implications of you know you did the air quotes the shameful violence um, yeah. What are the implications for uh, survivors of sexual assault, rape, um, different kinds of violence against women, um, you know, domestic violence, different things like that, or gendered violence? Um, what what have you seen in the Mennonite Church? How have they progressed? Are progressing? What's the direction? Is this becoming a safe place is it a safe place i'm not a part of a mennonite um community Mm -hmm. currently so i i wouldn't know so and i think a lot of people who are listening to this might not know either um Mm -hmm. has that uh communal narrative or communal silence affected things in real time um for victims of trauma today Mm -hmm. like Every denomination, the Mennonite, the Mennonite Church, is uh, got a wide <laughs> um, spectrum of theology and practice, and so some parts of our church are really working hard, really hard, on anti-oppression work, anti-racism work, 
homophobia, gender identity. Some of our, some pieces of our church are really doing excellent work on that. And so providing spaces of safety, I should say spaces of bravery, right? Mm -hmm. Where victims are invited to tell their story and are held and encouraged and helped to sort out uh, ways forward in their healing journey and at the same time wrestling with uh, destructive systems that allow for oppression and violation. That's all happening. Um, in the Mennonite Church, and I'm very grateful for that. There's wonderful, wonderful work being done, and this, you know, examples of that, uh, certainly in Canada and certainly in the um, U.S. And then there are other pieces of our larger, or places of our larger church community where it's not happening, right? Where, you know, patriarchy is not being challenged or it's just so difficult to challenge and absolutely there are places of violence in our church and that is painful <laughs> yeah yeah and and again i think that is across our denominations there are congregations churches pockets of our communities that are working um, again anti-oppression is the best word i'm thinking of at this moment and then there are places where that violence is still continuing i mean that's yeah. That's part of the work that I feel called to, right? Yeah. And you feel called to it too. So there are definitely those places. And I think, you know, the church has got to be that place where we, we, we as disciples of, of a God of peace should know how to create um, these spaces. And then, and then, you know what I'm, as I'm saying this though, I'm, I'm, I'm so reminded of, I was able to attend two of the truth and reconciliation processes, commissioners processes in Canada. And those were incredible places of healing. They were indigenous-led spaces where such attention was put on ritual, one that I was in, a traditional whale oil lamp um, was lit by an Inuit elder. And then the three commissioners are brushed uh, with cedar and smudged with sage, and then they take their place on the stage. And then the survivor, who also is smudged, begins their testimony. And so that place of ritual where there was a fire that was constantly kept burning in support of the survivors that were telling their stories. Oh, this Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, if you don't know about it, was in response to survivors of the Indian residential schools of the Canadian system saying, we need the Canadian government and Canadian churches in particular to take responsibility for the decades of abuse and violence that happened at these schools where Indigenous children were swept away from their parents and taken to a school so far away where they were stripped of their clothing and stripped of their culture, stripped of their language and experienced many experienced emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So horrific 
um, intergenerational impact of Indian residential schools. And in response, the indigenous people that were a part of shaping this Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up these sacred places where testimony could be shared in a way that brought healing for those who were speaking. And so, you know, there there are incredible practices in our churches where we can learn to help people heal and then these the practices in the indigenous community amazing ways of knowing how to heal and give testimony, speak truth to power, name violence, so that those of us of European descent, settlers um, sitting in the audience could hear. It was a very powerful experience of deep, deep healing rooted in deep uh, indigenous um, spirituality and ritual. It's a brilliant example of what you talked about at the beginning, and this can kind of loop us in towards the end here, but um, you talked about how our healing is is so interconnected to the healing of our neighbor, whether uh-huh. that's our indigenous neighbor, our traumatized neighbor, whoever that person is, and we're not okay if they're not okay. And right. we can't be reconciled if we can't address and name what is trauma as opposed to calling it something else or blaming a victim. Um, We can't, uh, we can't be healed. And so this is absolutely foundational in, in healing and healing from trauma on all sides. And so I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and all the time that you gave me today. And if you have anything else that you want to say to clergy, anything, you know, anything else that you want to add? Mm. You know, I really, I really do believe that the church can be and should be a place of healing. And we have the resources available. You know, there's, there's ways of building up our cortisol levels when we sing together and when we pray together and when we do acts of service together. Those are all ways of building healthy levels of cortisol, which is what helps us uh, and our <laughs> mental health um, capacity. But, you know, there is so much woundedness right now that we are are living through and that we are perhaps unwittingly perpetuating and what are ways that the church can help those of us that are settlers to to wrestle with our complicity in you know the different ways that we benefit participate in white skin privilege on one hand and then What are ways that uh, we can create spaces for people to tell their stories, their own stories of pain and trauma, um, suffering? Because in doing that, in acknowledging our brokenness and acknowledging our privilege, maybe we can build our own health and our own resilience to be able to authentically work for justice in our shared land, our shared community, um, with people that we want to be allies with, but because we are bringing so much stuff of our own, 
we cannot authentically work because we haven't done our own work. And, you know, let's just end on, on the words of Audre Lorde, you know, doing our own work. What does it look like if we want to really be true allies to others? What is doing our own work? And I think it includes both of those, doing our own work around the pain that we carry, whether that's intergenerational or our own experiences, and then doing our, our own privilege work and naming the ways that we are complicit in powers structures of white skin privilege racism all of that stuff the church i think is called to do that work yeah and could be the space where that work really happens you have been listening to the bart cast produced by bartimaeus cooperative ministries to find our resources or to donate to support the bart cast please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.